Here's how we're going to start. We're going to start the way we always uh, start uh, right before the passage for the sermon. We're going to start with our kids, okay? Talk to our kids. This is a great preview. It's a great preview for everybody about where we're going uh, and how to understand the passage before us. So, kids, can I have your attention? Have y'all ever heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not? Kind of, it's kind of, it's it's been around for like a literally, it's been around a hundred years, and it started off as a newspaper, and now there's it's like a TV show. I think it's still a TV show. There, there's even a museum or a couple museums, and uh, and there's a video game. I don't know how that video game works out because this is what it is. It tells you about all these really weird, unbelievable true stories. So here just a, here's just a few headlines from like Ripley's Believe It or Not. Researchers found a four and a half foot, 115 pound salamander, and they think it's over 200 years old, believe it or not. Okay, how about this? Doctors discover four bees living inside a woman's eye, believe it or not. <laughs> okay, how about this one? <laughs> the, uh, they found frozen frozen ghost apples appear suddenly in Michigan in a Michigan orchard is it orchard or orchid in an orchard right I never get that right Be believe it or not uh, okay how about this one there's a there's a man who ate an who ate an entire airplane piece by piece he had one in his backyard. He took a piece of it and ground it up into fine dust. And over like 10 years, he ate a plane. Believe it or not. Uh, okay, uh, here are some really weird eating habits. Uh, xylophagia. Those are people that eat wood. Don't eat wood. Uh, trichophagia. People that eat hair. Geophagy. People that eat dirt. We were we were working in some dirt the other day, and Peyton was like, "Man, this looks like this looks delicious." And I was like, I, I, "It's like clay. It kind of looks like ice cream." I was like, "Yeah, but don't eat it." Um, okay, how about this one? Uh, there is there is a video of a deadly carnivorous cannibalizing rabbit up in Canada. There's a there's a rabbit up in Canada that hunts down other, other rabbits. There you go, believe it or not. Okay, uh, how, about, uh, how about this one, kids? 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> believe it or not, believe it. Okay, how about this? A week later, 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus died. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he is still alive. True. True story. Believe it or not. Okay, how about this? If you believe in this Jesus, your soul will go to heaven when you die and you will be with him forever and ever and ever. And then sometime in the future, this guy Jesus will raise your body from the grave and you'll have it forever and ever and ever. Believe it or not. Believe it. Okay, so it's Easter, kids, and we can say, yeah, no, I believe that. Like Easter, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. You have to stop for just a moment, kids, and think about how crazy that is. All those other Ripley's, believe it or not, stories, yeah, okay. The Son of God, 
I mean, this is what we say. We believe that the Son of God became man and that this Jesus of Nazareth who was born in this teeny, teeny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere lived a perfect life even as a kid. Loved everybody and God perfectly never sinned. And then he died on a cross and then three days later he rose from the dead and he walked around and he ate fish and he showed people his scars. He walked through walls and then he went up to heaven and he says he's coming back. Do you believe that? Yes. That's what I believe. And that's what we are called to believe. Now, if you believe that, that's good. And that's what the Bible says you should believe. The next question is, what difference does that make for you, kids? What, does it, what difference does that make for us? I mean, think about it. If Jesus is the Son of God, do you listen to him like he is God and your king? Yes. If you believe that he rose from the dead, do you think he is the one who is worthy of all praise and love? Yes. If you believe that those who believe in him will be with him in glory forever and ever, do you worry about spending time with him right now in the wonderful ways that you can? If this guy Jesus defeated death for you, don't you think it's not crazy that he should be the biggest thing in your life? Yeah, that's not crazy. Believe it. That's what we believe about Jesus. That's what we believe about this faith. That's what we believe about Easter. Today is Easter. Uh, last Sunday, uh, for Palm Sunday, what we did, everyone, was we looked at the first part of John chapter 11. And I said that the first part of John chapter 11, it's the hinge of John's entire gospel. It, it, it is the crux of the whole thing. Uh, it, Jesus gets word that his, friend's La his friend Lazarus is dead. And then there's all this back and forth about whether or not he's going to go and, and help. And then Lazarus dies. And Jesus says, yep, we're going back. And the disciples freak out because they know how dangerous it is for Jesus to go back there. And Jesus knows it too. As in Jesus knows that if he goes back to Judea, if he goes to Lazarus, that he is sealing his fate, as it were. He is sealing his doom. If he raises Lazarus from the dead, it's going to be too much, and it is inevitably going to lead to him being put to death. That's where we left off. And we're picking up right there. Please stand for the reading of our passage, John chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 17. So now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? she said to him, yes, Lord, 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, John, I said this last time, John 11 is it's my, it's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. There is so much here, uh, and it's got my favorite verse uh, in the whole Bible. I love every part of it from beginning to end. Jumping in right here at the beginning of this part of the chapter, Martha confronts Jesus, and she says what we are all thinking. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? We needed you. Where were you? That question, I've asked it. God, where were you on 9-11? God, where were you when Harvey hit? God, where were you in 2020? And we've all asked that. Uh, God, where were you when my friend died, when my mom died? <clears throat> Our question, Martha's question, it's, le it's legitimate. If Jesus had been there, he could have done something. And we said this last time that it was all intentional. As if, if Jesus had just dropped everything and rushed to Lazarus and miraculously made him better, what would have happened? Same old, same old. Uh, everyone wowed, everyone amazed in believing that Jesus is some miracle doctor, a magic man. And uh, Jesus will not allow for the same old, same old reaction. The time has come. He is really revealing himself to be the God-man, and he is intentionally forcing the hand of his enemies who knows they won't be able to overlook this one because now everyone is going to follow Jesus. That's what it says at the very end of John chapter 11, that they hear this, everyone's going nuts, 
and the religious leaders conspire to put Jesus to death. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, Jesus knows this. He is intentionally paving the way to the cross. The death of Lazarus, we, we, we touched on this last time. It does not exhaustively answer the question, why does God allow these things? But what we do get to see here is what Jesus does when he is faced with death himself. Verses 33 and 38 it says that Jesus was deeply moved. He arrives, sees people crying, he's deeply moved. He goes to the tomb, he's deeply moved. And commentators, they agree that this, this translation, deeply moved, it doesn't, it doesn't capture everything that's here. The, the context isn't quite enough to, to beef that translation up. Uh, the verb, that verb, it's used three other times in the New Testament, just briefly. Matthew 9.30, it's translated sternly warned. Mark 1.43, sternly charged. Again, Mark 14.5, scolded. So, in, And in other ancient, ancient Greek texts, even before uh, New Testament, this word is used to describe war horses snorting. And in the footnote in the ASV, if you've got you know, one of those old-timey Bibles that you, you know, it's got the pages and it's, uh, it says at the bottom, or was indignant. Because this word means righteous anger. Jesus came to the tomb and he was furious. Why is Jesus furious? When, when we were younger, middle school, high school, I can't remember how old we were. I've been trying to figure this out. Uh, my family went to Disney World uh, and it was a hot summer day and we were standing and we were waiting in the very, very long line for Space Mountain. Uh, after about an hour of standing and waiting, we're almost in when another family kind of sidles up next to the line, and they start acting like, "Oh, where, where are we going to go next? You all, you know, we're going to, you all want to go here, 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 and yeah, oh, you know, I don't know. Oh, hey, we're uh, at the front of the line at Space Mountain. You know, they just kind of merged into the line, and we just so." so frustrating. We're sitting there in frustration and disbelief of we've been waiting for almost an hour and uh, these people just cut right in line. Nice. Except not nice. And we look at each other and we're discussing our frustration and disbelief and even the people in the behind us are, we're sharing our frustration and disbelief with the people behind us like oh my gosh. And, uh, and all of a sudden this dad turns around and it turns out he's gigantic. He's huge. And he gets right in my sister's face and my mom's face. And my mom and my sister don't hesitate to share with this large man their frustration uh, that he has uh, led his family into cutting in front of everybody and not just in front of us, but in front of all these people behind us. Uh, and, and this all happens in like a split second. He's standing there. <laughs> in my mom's face, my sister's face, and so my dad and, and me position ourselves between this guy and my mom and my sister, and this guy takes one look at me, and, and he says, and it turns out he's Australian, uh, and he says, oh, you got a problem, mate, 
And then my brother, without hesitating, steps out of line. I can't remember. I think he de-shirts. Bows up, flexes, and says, I got a problem, mate. And, and the crowd goes wild. You know, it's not gathered like around us. No one's getting out of line. But, uh, you know, they're just cheers in the line of like, yeah. And, you know, the guy takes one look at my brother, uh, who's half his size, and just relents, leaves with some choice words to go, and they try their luck elsewhere. Um, I tell you that, I tell you that, because righteous anger is a destructive force that moves towards whatever is threatening the thing that you love. My little brother sees his family being threatened, and it made him angry. And here's Jesus, and he goes to the tomb, and he is furious. And he is furious at death itself. But that's, pause there, that's not all he does. Furious, Jesus sees Mary weeping and he sees all the family and friends right there weeping and in response, verse 35, Jesus weeps. And that language, is, it is not tough guy shedding a tear. It's not the proper reserved uh, lady patting the corner of her eye with an embroidered handkerchief. This is ancient Near Eastern mourning wailing. Jesus wept. Y'all remember that movie, Inside Out? Uh, is the animated movie. is about the little girl, uh, and it's about her, her emotions that are personified. You know, she's, she's young, so she's, you know, obviously still developing, so her emotions are very, they're simple. They're, so her emotions are joy and sadness and anger and fear and disgust, and half her emotions are uh, from the office. Disgust is Kelly Kapoor, and sadness is Phyllis. Uh, okay, and there's this scene... There's this scene with Bing Bong, uh, the little girl's imaginary friend. And Bing Bong has lost his rocket. And his rocket was everything to him and Riley, the little girl. Uh, and he loses the rocket. And he is, there's a scene where he's just a wreck. And he just sits down. And Joy, the, you know, they're on this journey to help Riley. And Joy is trying to get Bing Bong up. They need him. And so she tries to cheer him up. And she says, hey, it's okay. We can fix this. And then, like, let's just keep going. And she tries to get him up and, and moving. He won't move. He's devastated. And so Joy says, hey, who's ticklish? Here comes the tickle monster. And that doesn't work. And it's not moving. And so she makes, like, all these silly faces. She says, let's play a game. Uh, and then sadness comes. The little blue uh, girl and sadness comes and she sits down next to Bing Bong and she says, I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something you loved and it's gone forever. And Joy butts in. She's like, no, it's sadness. It's like, don't make him feel worse. But sadness sits there and she asks and Bing Bong talks about his, his loss and then sadness just puts her hand on Bing Bong's hand and she just says, yeah, it's sad. And they just collapse into each other's arms, just wailing, crying. 
And then after a few minutes, Bing Bong wipes his tears away and he says, I'm okay now. Let's go. And Joy is, is there and she does not understand how sadness was able to do that. Now, the super crazy thing about this scene uh, in John 11 is, is Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. He knows what he's going to do. He comes to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is going to do it. But he doesn't look at everyone crying and say, oh, ladies and gentlemen, please, maybe this will cheer you up. Skadoosh! You know, something like... He doesn't, he doesn't like, he doesn't like, y'all only knew kind of thing. Like, he comes, super crazy thing about this is he knows what he's going to do, and what does he do? He looks at everyone angry and crying, and he gets angry, and he cries. He arrives at the tomb knowing what's going to happen, and he weeps, and he rages. His death looms over every one of us. And, and yet I know when I say that, like, death looms over every one of us. That is, ooh, that is so taboo to talk about death that way today. Uh, and that's not new. Like, that's not new that it's taboo to talk about death in that way. The Greeks and the Romans, like, at this time, they, they essentially, they just denied their grief. In the face of death, the Epicureans, just, you know, one sect of Greeks said, you know, the way we're going to approach this, what does it really matter? Like, what does it really matter? You live your life realizing there's no life beyond the grave. When you die, you rot. Death is the end of everything. After death, what do you get? You get oblivion. So let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry. Tomorrow it's all over. Who cares? Another group, the Stoics in the face of death, they said, it is what it is. It's nature. Don't fight fate. This is the way it goes. Some of the other Greeks said, who knows, we'll find out what's on the other side of death. Hopefully there's something. But what that really meant for them is physical life is meaningless. What we've got to wait and find out, is there anything for the soul after death? And in our society today, we do, we do the same old, same old. As in, we really do remove ourselves from death as much as possible, avoid it as much as possible. We do this in a million ways. One way people deal with death today is we, we, don't, we don't talk about it. And we deny death. It's, it's like a giant conspiracy. Um, and I've been, to, I've been to many funerals. Uh, I've heard of many funerals. We, we want the, the funeral to be a celebration of life. And I, I get that. And I understand that. And at the same time, we want to recognize that when a loved one dies, it is terrible, it is significant, it is devastating. And a long and beautiful life does not mitigate, it does not lessen the terribleness of a person's passing, it heightens it. Every death is a life cut short because we were not created to die. There are others who go the other way and acknowledge that death is for real and we know all about it and we face it and it's, it's fine. As in, this is, it's okay. You know, the death is a natural thing. What this is is actually trying to make friends with death 
and say death is natural. It's, it's a sentimental approach to death, as in let's sentimentalize this thing as much as we can so we're not scared of it. As in death is just a part of life. Think about that sentence. Death is just a part of life. That is a big old inconsistent, ironic, contradictory, nonsensical, non sequitur lie. That sentence doesn't make any sense. And and sadly, we 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 like Christians can create these circles where we communicate that if you grieve for too long, that's a sign of unfaithfulness. It's, it's, it's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of weakness because after all the deceased, that they're now in heaven. They're with Jesus. Like, be, be happy and glad for them. And yet, Jesus shows us right here firsthand that it is right to grieve. It is right to be angry over the tragedies that you experience. When children die, that is awful. When our loved ones who, li- who have lived long lives, when they die... That is awful. Jesus was never a friend to death. And for us to grieve and be angry at death too, that is Christ-like. That's, that's the so what? Like right here at the beginning of the application of like, what do you do in the face of death? You grieve and you be angry. And it's not just what Jesus does here. It's what he says, too. He looks at grieving, angry Martha, who is, she showed, Jesus showed up. She's already looking past Jesus. If you had been here, I know he will be raised, like, on the last day. And it's like, Jesus is like, come back, Martha, Martha, look at me. Come back. You know, when she says, like, yeah, I'm looking forward to the end, the resurrection on the last day. It's like Jesus interrupts her and says, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. And, and I remember reading that for the first time and thinking, dang, I love that. What does that mean? Like, really, I was like, that's so cool. Well, I don't get it. Like, is Jesus just like saying that like he gives resurrection in like a really, really cool way? I am the resurrection and the life. No, it's actually much cooler than that. Robert Oppenheimer, you may know that name, he was an American theoretical physicist and professor of physics, and he was the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory, uh, and he's one of, he's considered one of the fathers of the atomic bomb because of his role in the Manhattan, Manhattan Project, the, it, which is the World War II uh, undertaking to create, de- develop uh, the first nuclear weapon. So the first atomic bomb is successfully Detonated. It's, you know, there's this test on July 16th, 1945. It's the Trinity test in New Mexico. And Oppenheimer is there. He's watching it. And this is how he describes his reaction. He says he later remarked that it brought to mind for him the words from the Bhagavad Gita uh, saying this, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's how he felt. And he said, I think I and everyone else there felt that. And just weeks later, the weapons were used in the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oppenheimer created it, and he got it. Death is a monster. 
Death is an enemy. Death is the last enemy, the New Testament says. Death cannot be avoided. It cannot be denied. It is not a friend. And, and here's where we do the biblical theological thing of saying the mortality of mankind, the fact that we die has everything to do with sin. And therefore, death is biblically understood as the punishment. It is the penalty for sin. In other parts of the New Testament, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul the Apostle, he clearly states that death entered into the world through the sin of one man, Adam, in the garden. That death is the curse, the curse of that ancient covenant between God and Adam, which Adam and Eve broke by their sin, and because they represented every, all their babies, all their kids, all of us, all their posterity, all future generations, the curse of death has passed unto all. That is death since the fall, it is the one that has devoured mankind. That's the biblical theology of death. So now think of this awesome, awesome claim. For Jesus to say, I am the resurrection and the life means that he has overcome. He is the one who conquers death. Jesus' resurrection and his resurrection life now in heaven, it is his victory over the power of death. And Jesus is your resurrection. Think about that. Jesus is your resurrection because he's the way anyone gets resurrected. Because it's all because of him. It's all from him. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only solution to death. Now, we know this, that Lazarus, this thing here, what happens here, it's a restoration. <clears throat> it is a resumption of mortal existence as in Lazarus did die again. This is what's different between... This is a foreshadowing of the real resurrection that Jesus brings, that Jesus, the New Testament, says when he was raised from the dead, he's given a new spiritual body. The first fruits of that final resurrection harvest to come, which is the rest of us. The, the harvest... Got to get into your farmer mentality. The harvest, it's begun. Like, it has begun. It began with Jesus. And we're the rest of the harvest. It, it, it's not simply a restoration of life that, that Jesus would die again. His resurrection is a thorough routing and conquering of death. Again, two seconds here. In Romans 5, it says that while death entered, the fir entered through the first Adam, eternal life enters creation through the second Adam. That's Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, and in his life, he did what the first Adam was supposed to do and didn't do, as in he lived a life of perfect obedience in the place of his people. And he also took the ultimate curse of death on the cross in the place of his people to pay for the penalty for our sin. Jesus, he gets justified by his obedient life, as in he merits eternal life for us. does it by taking our death, our condemnation that he did not deserve and by grace we get what he did deserve which we don't deserve in and of ourselves when Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus he's weeping over 
he is furious at death and he has come at that tomb he has come to do battle with death right there we said this last time this is the hinge if he does this there is no going back it is the cross it is the wrath of god that he will have to take in our place if he does this if jesus does this he's forcing the hand of his enemies they will kill him for this and jesus knows it so it's like Jesus shows up at the tomb and you've got to imagine, it's like Jesus and death have this conversation. And death says to Jesus, don't touch me or I'll touch you back. You bring Lazarus out and I will bury you. And Jesus says, yeah, come on. This is Jesus' furious love for Lazarus and for us. As in Jesus' love for you does not leave you in the grave. It gets you out of the grave. And the resurrection of Lazarus is this visible guarantee that death is not the end for us. This miraculous foreshadowing of the final resurrection, what we celebrate on Easter and truly every Sunday. The future resurrection is so awesome. It is so certain because Jesus himself is the resurrection and life. And whoever believes in him, it says, will have this resurrection and life forever. forever. Martha, Martha tells Jesus that she believes in the future resurrection. But then you listen to the rest of what Jesus says. I'm just going to take two seconds. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. As in Martha wanted Jesus to come so Lazarus would live. And when Jesus doesn't come and Lazarus died martha puts her hope in the future bodily resurrection on the last day but that is only part of our hope as in jesus wants martha to focus on him god incarnate standing before her the future resurrection is only possible because of him and through him and in him alone is martha martha in the face of death is looking to hope to this great future event and the great irony is life eternal is standing right there staring her in the face so in a very real sense, it was nothing about Martha's faith in a future event that she's going to see her brother at the end of time at the resurrection. But the question is, and the question is for you, is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus the answer to death? Because the Bible says that when you, Jesus says that when you put your faith in him, you become a new creation. When you become a Christian, you become a new creation. There is spiritual resurrection right now when you believe. And I know you may not feel like it, but if you have put your faith in Jesus, you have new life right now, and that life that you have right now, it will never end, ever. Question to you, same one to Martha, do you believe this? If you believe it, it means that you have eternal life already right now and you need to live like it in the face of death and it looks something like this george herbert was an early 17th century priest he was a he was a poet he wrote a poem called a dialogue anthem uh, and it's a dialogue between a christian and death and the christian is boasting and the christian is mocking death it's the way Paul did it in the New Testament. You think of the way Paul did this. You think of this poem, and you're like, who can, who can mock death like that? 
you can. This is what it looks like to live in the face of death. Christian, alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, that ancient sting? And death says, alas, poor mortal, void of story. Go spell and read how I have killed your king. And the Christian responds, poor death. And who was hurt thereby? Your curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. And death said, let losers talk, yet you shall die. These arms shall crush thee. And Christian says, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou, so much worse, that thou shalt be no more. Believe it or not, that is true. It's the glory of Easter. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, here with your people, we celebrate and praise your Son, our Lord and Savior. And together, uh, with audible voice, we lift up that prayer that our Lord and Savior taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.